Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Regardless of where we stand and regardless of what happens in our culture, his praise will be on my lips. Amen? He's worthy. He's worthy of praise. If you're here today and you didn't receive a message card upon your entrance, you can raise your hand. And one of our team leaders, one of our ushers there in the back would love to serve you. We are in week three of a series called People of the Fine Print. People of the Fine Print. And uh, Pastor Chad preached week one, giving us an overall picture of what it means to be a person of the fine print. We're looking at those individuals in Scripture who do not get much notoriety. Yet because of their willingness to obey God, they made huge impacts on the kingdom of God. Last week we talked about the son of encouragement. His name is Barnabas. And we walked through a passage in the book of Hebrews about what it means to encourage one another. How did you do on your homework? How did you do on your homework? Did okay? I saw some Facebook challenges go this week where you were saying day two is getting really tough for me to speak positively towards my children. Others of you, I saw some, some responses on, on uh, Facebook. Well, I want to try to encourage day three, day four challenge. But we're speaking life and encouraging words to one another, words that build up. I uh, some time ago had God ignite something in my heart. I didn't think I would preach it in this series. Um, In fact, I had imagined that I would preach part two of the message I preached last week, and um, there's no way I can do that. My heart has come alive with this word, and uh, I believe God is going to speak to us very clearly today. If you have a Bible, open with me to Psalm 73. If you see in your text, you'll see at the top it says, A Psalm of Asaph. A Psalm of Asaph. I'm entitling today's message... Asaph, God's worship leader. Asaph, God's worship leader. Like I did last week, could you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Psalm 73, if you've missed your Bible reading over the last few days, no problem. You're going to get it in right now, all right? Psalm 73, I'm going to read from the NIV today, verses, beginning in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. This is Asaph. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. I have the grass is greener on the other side syndrome. They are, I just inserted that myself. They are not plagued by human ills. Watch this. Their bodies are healthy and strong. Therefore, pride, verse 6, is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain, I've been serving God. Surely it's in vain. What is the point? I kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. And everybody else on my Facebook feed who is godless seems to be prosperous. And if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. 
When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Notice the intensity of the language. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they're destroyed, completely swept away by terrors like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you'll despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast, God, before you, yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and after you're going to take me into glory. Whom I have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and portion forever. This is God's words. He said, those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, oh, it's good to be near God. For I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I'll tell of your deeds. Father, thank you for the time we have. May this word come alive in the hearts of those who listen like it has in mine. Lord, we thank you and praise you for that in Christ's name. And everybody sit. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I've got a simple message for you this week. The message is this. Attention leads to adoration. Attention leads to adoration. A couple of years ago, I realized something was wrong with me. Something was happening with me. It was around the area of concentration. Everybody say concentration. Now, I historically, being a conscientious person by God's design, I assume, have always had a very strong sense of focus. I have never in my life had moments where focus was lost or seemed to wane. I've always been a very focused, conscientious person from my earliest memories. I've never been known to have ADD or ADHD or anything like that. But I began to notice a few years ago these little clues and habits and behaviors that began to shift in my life. They began to pop up in different areas of my life. Area number one, I couldn't sit in a movie anymore without checking my phone. I couldn't sit anymore. I was unable to sit in front of a TV set or a movie theater, for that matter, without checking my phone. Now, I don't watch movies. My wife can attest to that. I, I probably save them all up until the holidays to make it through or something. I'm just not a, a movie watcher. I like to watch sports, and that's about it. And, and so I would watch movies, though, and, and I would get to these documentaries that I was so anxious to watch. People would tell me, you got to watch this documentary. And I would get halfway through, and I'd be like, man, I need to check the Instagram I need to see what's happening on Instagram. And so I would pause the movie or I wouldn't. I would just zone out and I'd get on social media and I'd pedal around a little bit and I would follow hashtags and look at that person to this and lead me there to this and that and so on. And, and, and even recommended movies, right? People would say, man, Pastor Craig, you've got to watch this movie. I'd get 20 minutes into it and I'd get bored. I literally couldn't finish. And this is the first time in my life I've been this way. I've never been this way before. But then I began to realize this was not just showing up in my entertainment, it was showing up in my reading. Now reading is something I have never had a problem with. Reading is something I've always been focused in. I used to read books in one sitting, right? This is what I did in middle school. This is in fact what got me mocked often in my middle school, high school years is because my family, we would read books in one sitting. Well, how many books did you read this week? I was very, very focused. But it would get to where I couldn't even read a full chapter because I would get so compelled to see what was happening on Facebook. I would get so compelled. And it just felt so urgent, Facebook did. And it felt so real. And it felt with such immediacy. And it felt so poignant and so pressing. And then eventually this bled and made its way into my time with God. 
And I thought, okay, something's wrong with me. Our church, we follow a Bible reading plan that looks like this. It's made for short attention span people. You can read through the Bible in a month if you're even halfway devoted, right? I mean, you can with any bit of discipline. But this is made for 21st century short-term attention span folks. This is made for little chunks. We're talking about like 15 minutes out of a 24-hour day, and you read through the Bible in a year. Made for people with short attention spans, and it began to really concern me because now I knew distantly that attention spans were shrinking, but I knew I had a problem when I couldn't make it through the short, chopped up bit of Scripture for people with short attention spans to read the Bible to get on my phone again. Something was compelling me internally in my mind to check it again, engage it again. And I never realized that my attention was actually being stolen from me. So I began to do some research. I came across a book, fabulous book. I'm going to give you several today. I'm going to give you two that I really highly recommend. Nicholas Carr wrote a book. It's a Pulitzer Prize book called The Shallows. Don't be confused with the Netflix uh, movie, The Shallows, where the girl gets eaten by a shark, okay? So this is a different Shallows. Even now, it was written in 2011, it's a bit dated, but the principles are true. Our attention spans in America are shifting. They're shifting. Nicholas Carr says this, What the internet seems to be doing is chipping away at my capacity for concentration and contemplation. Whether I'm online or not, my mind now expects to take in information the way the internet distributes it. In a swiftly moving stream of particles. Once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words. Now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. I slip along the surface. I'm I'm being inundated so much with words. Now maybe you've noticed this in your own life. You used to be able to read 2,000 word articles. Now you're good to get through half page blog posts. You just say, oh, yeah, 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 I agree, you know, click I agree, like the licensing agreement on the software licensing agreement on your iTunes phone, you know, your iTunes, your iPhone. You know, I just agree, right? And he goes on and tells in his book that the, the, the whole media of America is about trying to capture your attention. He was attending a Phi Beta Kappa meeting at Duke University, Duke, known for its academics, where the Duke literary professor literary professor, people who study books, said, I cannot get my students to read full books anymore post-2010. Listen to me. I can't get people who study books to read books. Why? Because attention spans are shifting. Now, are you feeling this? Uh, Am I on my own? Okay. Are you feeling this shift in our culture? They talk about in technology the fourth screen. As we've reportedly seen, over the last 100 years, technology was introduced to humankind to introduce and disrupt habits. That's the purpose of technology. Introduce and disrupt human habits. That's the the baseline definition of technology. So it was first with the newspaper. If you study the newspaper, newspaper, it was fascinating. It was basically designed to distract people's attention so that they could get the greater populace of America on the same mental wavelengths. It was introduced to grab people's attention and attempt to hijack your attention. Now that moved on to the evening broadcast where people would gather around a little box in their room and they would listen to radio waves. It was called a radio and they would listen to the Yankees play. And if you got really, really lucky, maybe you got to listen one night to the Braves play. But people now then transitioned to gathering around these little boxes in the living room. 
Uh, like my Asian friend said years ago, I was blown away. He said, I, I came to America and I couldn't understand it. He said, everybody in their living room has their furniture set up to worship this thing that's on the wall. He said, it's amazing. He said, everything even is created to worship, to keep your eyes locked on this screen. Now, it eventually made its way into the third screen, which was the computer screen. Now, the computer screen came on, and it was about email and AOL and dial-up. You remember all that, and instant messaging. But now we're at the fourth screen. But, but, but watch. For the computer screen, we actually had to sit down and be at the screen. But now with the fourth screen, it's with us wherever we go wherever we go. This has changed our lives. It's changed humanity probably in the last 10 years more than any seismic shift in the last 500 years. Maybe apart from the Industrial Revolution or the printing press, the Gutenberg printing press, it has changed life. One author in terms of capturing our attention describes this as the art of fracking. The word fracking is mining for reservoirs that were previously unreachable and then harvesting them, tapping into them, and then being able to use them for your advantage. The fourth screen in our pockets are fracking us. They're tapping into deep reservoirs in the human capacity that have not been accessed, and they're leading us to ultimately give it our attention. Folks, even the smallest amounts of our lives are now being hacked. Pull up to a red light, open up the phone for the 25 seconds you've got to scroll three or four finger worths, okay? Sitting at the doctor's office, there's nobody sitting at the doctor's office that's not looking at a screen. We are being targeted. We are being tracked. The algorithms are after us. They're designed to get us. So the big thesis of my message is this. You ready? Distraction leads to disillusionment, but attention leads to adoration, Distraction leads to disillusionment, but attention leads to adoration. And the reason I'm talking about this is because when I talk to people who are serious about Jesus, I'm talking about real followers, like they say, Pastor Craig, I want to grow in prayer and grow in devotion, but I'm just so distracted. People just can't seem to pay attention anymore. And, and I'm talking about the most sincere people, like sincere Jesus followers. They say, when I try to get in the presence of God or I try to read the Bible, I just can't concentrate so rather than me getting up here today and talking about breakthrough prayer and contending for the nations and interceding for our cities, I just want to talk about paying attention to where God is working. Because if I can't pay attention to where God is working, everything else in prayer is theory. It's theory. It's untapped. It's untapped. I just can't concentrate. The root complaint I get as a pastor, I just can't keep my focus. Let's talk for a moment about the science of attention. Let me introduce to us the science of attention. If you're unfamiliar with this, you need to understand it if you're really going to be a person who is a person of focus, a person who really is a person of focused devotion. Okay? We must understand this. Attention is about monitoring our short-term memory. Okay? We have limited short-term memory as human beings, and our brain is processing through symptoms or systems in our brain all the time trying to determine what am I going to dump out because I have limited RAM, and what am I going to convert to long-term memory? The long-term memory is what we call our hard drive. So, for example, if I put a cell phone number up on the screen right now, and I said, hey, I'm going to encourage you to memorize the cell phone number, and in three minutes, I'm going to ask you. I'm going to give you a minute to memorize it, and in three minutes, I'm going to ask you again. I would say, based upon research, about 95% of you would be able to recall that number. But if tonight at 11.30 p.m., I texted you before you fell asleep, and I said, hey, man, what's that number again from church? You're going to say, dude, I lost it, man. It's gone. 
It's gone. Why? Because your brain determined that was a random number that had no meaning imputed to it. Now, watch. If I also now take someone who you've been interested in at DP for three years, you've been really highly interested in them, and they, after church today, give you their cell phone number, and then I tonight at 11.30 p.m. text you, hey, what's that number? You're going to say, man, what number do you want? You want the area code first? You want the first three digits? What do you want? Why? Because here's what you did. Your brain as a human being imputed meaning to the memorization of the single digits that came across your mind. Okay, so you got to understand something. Your brain determines that for you. That's how you're made, okay? That's how you're made. So think about this. The brain is trying at all times to determine what do I keep for now? What do I keep for long term? And so in the modern attention economy, how do you like that phrase? The modern attention common economy, attention becomes a commodity, So listen, the basic goal of the media is to try to take control of our short-term memory and attention and then somehow, some way, convert it to long-term loyalty to products, corporations, ideas, and people. That's the whole study of marketing. So the marketers are asking, how do I wake you up? How do I spur you and then get you to somehow convert that over the long-term allegiance. That's why attention is a commodity. So Ben Parr, in his fascinating book, Captivology, fascinating book called Captivology, he says this, First, in order to get somebody's reaction, you have to elicit reaction by being distinctive or disruptive. Social media, news. Once you have your audience's immediate attention, you need something unique, novel, and useful to keep their working memory focused on your message. Having secured their short attention, you must create value for your audience to capture their long-term attention. And in this book, I don't want to give them to you, he gives seven triggers to make, wake people up and then convert their memory to loyalty. Like for instance, the first one's colors trigger. There are certain colors that trigger in your brain that then moves us and catches our attention. Then he talks about framology. And the book is all about using these seven triggers to leverage people to get them to do what you want them to do. Now, Craig, what in the world does this have to do with people of the frying pan? Because the context of this passage is Asaph. Asaph is a person of the fine print. What do you mean? He's one of the official worship leaders around the time of David. In fact, he is the worship leader of Scripture. You say, why? Because he made it through David. In fact, made it through David's tent of meeting all the way through Solomon's temple to Rehoboam and Jeroboam in the, the splitting of the civil war of the kingdom. He, he, he was living, we know his life, 1020 to 920. He made it 100 years. Oh, was he a competent musician. So very skilled. He wrote 12 psalms. But just because he wrote 12 psalms, people say, well, he's not that high popular. Did you know almost every, scholars say every one of David's psalms, the music was not written by David. The psalm was written by David, but the music was written by Asaph. So Asaph was a person of the fine print, incredibly gifted, And his whole job in life, he was employed, by the way, to get people's eyes eyes off of the things of the world and to get their eyes back on God. He was employed as a worship leader. He was a skilled, competent worship leader. He wrote many, many psalms. But in this psalm, Psalm 73, what happens is he gets distracted. He gets his eyes off of God, and when he does that, he basically falls into a cycle. Listen to me, church. The reason I'm talking to us about this today is because I think it's the same cycle you and I experience when we get distracted. And distraction leads us to disillusionment, but attention leads to adoration. And I use this psalm because, listen, if one of the official worship leaders of Scripture can get distracted, then listen... 
it should be encouraging for you that you're not that bad. Okay? And then when he sets his eyes back on God, oh, this is so beautiful. It, and he moves from disillusionment to adoration. It provides us a pathway to get back on track with God. It gives us that pathway. So, ready? Distraction leads to disillusionment. Attention leads to adoration. Let's look at the first cycle. It's called the disillusionment cycle. Look at Psalm 73, verse 2. I'm not going to make these up. They're coming straight out of the psalm. It's not that long of a psalm. So you can follow straight through it. This is the cycle of distraction. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, he's a worship leader. His life basically consists of planning center. His life consists of services app. His life can, yeah, you can laugh. His life consists of liturgies, easy worship, if you're not Team 90s leader, okay? Easy worship. Oh, that's the PCers, not the, the non Mac users, okay? His, his worship, his life consists of liturgies and songs of praise, but somehow either he got bored with it or the, the, the other worship leader said, you can take off a month. I don't know. He didn't get to lead worship for a time. And so what he does is he begins to contemplate the arrogant. He begins to contemplate the wicked. And he describes it as almost slipping. And what happens in his heart, Pastor Craig, when he gets distracted? Envy for other people's lives creeps in. When distraction hits, envy creeps. We live in a culture that is conspiring to distract us and create envy in our heart. And it does this through disrupting that first stage of attention, waking us up. And those triggers via the algorithms on our phone are trying to get us to pay attention. And it's always the sensational, and it's always the controversial, and it's always the emotional. When you have a 24-hour news cycle, everything in the world is a crisis. Everything is drama. Nothing is a small deal. Nothing is little. And when's the last time you turned on the news station and they said, you know what, honestly today, friends, um, it's been a pretty un uneventful day on planet Earth and uh, there's a lot to be thankful for and let's just uh, lift up our voices and praise and uh, go hang out with your family tonight. All right, we're signing off. Never. You've never heard that. With a 24-hour news cycle, everything is immediate, everything is urgent, everything is a crisis, everything has a live reporter. Now we've got buses and vans that drive around, and we've got helicopters that go over top. Why? And we've got opinions and commentary and arguments and immediacy and urgency. And so we always feel like we're being distracted. We always feel like as humans we're, we're being pulled into the next a crisis around us. We're pulled out, here we go, out of our normal lives and into the crises around us. And if it's not a crisis, it's something we desire or envy. This distraction to things of the earth then leads us to distortion. Let me give you the cycle. So now we have distraction to distortion. In other words, we begin to look at the wrong thing. We are distorted by what we give our attention to. You don't see clearly anymore. You don't see a godly way. Notice what Psalm, uh, look at verse 4, Psalm 73 and verse 4. This is what it says, they have no struggles. Now that's not true, but he got his eyes off of the wrong thing, or off on the wrong thing. Their bodies are healthy and strong. That's not true. They're free from common human burdens. That's not true. That's called a distorted view of reality. They're not plagued by human ills. Why? Because he was, what? Distracted. Therefore, pride's their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. Their callous heart comes iniquities. Therefore, their people, verse 10, turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. Asaph is distorted, y'all. He's distorted as God's worship leader. He said, all wealthy people, they don't have any problems. That's not true. All wealthy people do have human ills. But when you get your eyes off the cost of discipleship and get your eyes on how easy life seems to be for other people, then you have 
have officially become distorted. When you've gotten distracted from the view of God, it leads inevitably to what we call distortion. That's, by the way, the number one goal of the enemy with distracting you. He wants to distort your awareness of the values of life. He wants to distort, distort as the people of God, your awareness of what life really is. Like, I can't think of another category in life, folks, where when you use the word binge, it's used in in a plotting kind of way, right? Other than binge watching Netflix. Like, think about this. Like, I'm a binge eater. Fast, fantastic, man. That's awesome. How how much you weigh? Dude, man, I am just a binge alcoholic. Oh, congratulations, man. That's awesome. But hey, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, dude. Dude, I'm binge watching like the whole season of Game of Thrones. Like I'm binge watching Stranger Things. Like 13 Reasons Why, that's this weekend. I was having a conversation with a barista just, just a couple weeks ago, and I said, how's it going, man? He said, good. And I said, hey, what's going on tomorrow? And he said, oh, tomorrow is my Netflix day. I thought, wow, you've, just, you've, you've, you've put an entire day in your schedule dedicated to Netflix. I thought that was fascinating. Like, I Sabbath, you Netflix. You know, like, this is fat. He said, yeah, man, I'm just going to binge watch a whole season. And I thought, that's fascinating, y'all, because so much of our life and vision is formed by what we give our attention to. So listen, let me give you an example. If I were to say to you, um, what would happen if you serve the poor for 12 hours every week of your life? If you were around them, close to them, close proximity to them, hearing their stories, feeding them, touching them, engaging with them, would that form you in any way? Yes. What if you took a guitar class for 12 hours a week, picked up your guitar for 12 hours a week, over time, would that form you? Yeah, you would have skill competency. What if you sit in front of a screen for 12 hours a week and just let someone else tell you what they want and seduce your imagination? Would it form you? No way. No way. Powerless. No way. No, it won't. It won't change me. It won't form me in the way of earth. Listen to the latest marketing article called Attention Merchants. This is what he said, a Netflix poll determined that 61% of people define their, view, define their viewing style in America as binge watching, which meant two to six episodes at a sitting. Grant McCracken, which was hired, uh, he's a cultural anthropologist paid by Netflix to investigate the habit and then make it worse. That's what he's paid to do. Reported that TV viewers are no longer zoning out as a way to forget about their day. They're tuning in on their own schedule to a different world. Getting immersed in multiple episodes or even multiple seasons of a show over a few weeks is a new kind of escapism that is especially welcomed today. We get our eyes off of the things of God and we get our eyes onto the things of the world. When we get our eyes onto the things of the world, we begin to get a distorted view of how life works. One reporter says this, this is powerful. He said, after watching Game of Thrones for a mere 30 seconds, my brain begins to produce the alpha waves that are typically associated with hazy receptive states of consciousness, which are also generated during what we call the light hypnotic stage of suggestion therapy. At the same time, my neurological activity switches from the left hemisphere to the right hemisphere. That is from the seat of logical thought to the seat of emotion. Watch this. This is powerful. Whenever this shift 
shift takes place, my body is flooded with, the, flooded with the natural opiates called endorphins, which explains why the viewers in America have explained and told scientists that they feel relaxed as soon as they switch on the television, and also why that same sense of relaxation tends to dissolve immediately after the TV set is turned off, Andrew Romano. Now you can imagine a, a worship leader, Asaph, gets his eyes off of God and he says, stuff it. I'm binging Stranger Things this weekend, or for him, Sopranos. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm binge-watching Sopranos this weekend. His vision of life distorts, which ultimately leads to, here's the third part of the cycle, discouragement. Distraction, distortion, discouragement. I'm not making it up. It's right there in the text. Verse 11, notice what happens. The Scripture said, they say, how, how would God know, Asaph? Asaph, you worship this, this God every weekend. Does the Most High know anything? Uh, you've seen him build three temples, including a tent of meeting. They're always free of care. They're going amassing wealth. And surely in vain, I've kept my heart pure. I've washed my hands in innocence all day long. I've been afflicted. And every morning brings new punishments. So what's his response? His response is, what's the point, man? All my unsaved friends that don't follow God seem to be happy, and they're sleeping around, drinking booze all the time, and here I am trying to follow Jesus and do the right thing, and I'm lonely, and I'm discouraged, and I'm disillusioned. So, so what's the point? Listen, y'all, you get discouraged in your spirit, and it feels like it's not worth it anymore. Why? Because your vision has been distorted because you've been distracted by the things of the world. Now, it ultimately leads you to a point where people are tempted to disobedience. Watch the cycle. Distraction leads to distortion, which leads to discouragement, which tempts me in disobedience. When you are encouraged and in a spirit of faith and joy, your ability to resist sin is really high. Have you ever come out of a worship service really high on Jesus and then temptation is like overwhelmingly hard? No, but when you are tired and when you are discouraged and when you are beat up and when your view is distorted, sin comes along and you're like, yeah, let me eat it. Can I get two plates? Right? So this is the enemy's goal. It's distraction, distortion, discouragement, then ultimately disobedience. What you would never do in a spirit of faith, you give up in a nanosecond in a spirit of discouragement. Sexuality, relationships, finances, lifestyle, sharing your faith with others. You don't share your faith with others when you're distorted. You don't share your faith with others when you're distracted. You don't share your faith with others when you're discouraged. Making idols out of our careers with no boundaries, it leads us to disobedience. Psalm 73, verse 21 and 22. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered. Listen to this language. I was senseless and ignorant. Watch this. I was a brute beast before you. Y'all, this is a worship leader talking. Instead of bringing people and being caught up in the presence of God, he says, I'm running on animal instinct. Like, I, I, I'm just, what feels right right now? Is this not America? Is Psalm 73 America or is it not America? I'm just running on raw instinct. What feels right, what doesn't feel right? Raw reaction. What do I want? When do I want it? Let me medicate, which ultimately leads me to the last part, which is disillusionment. So here's the cycle. Distraction. Distortion. Discouragement. Just notice what happens here. Disobedience that leads me to disillusionment. Look at verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. That's called disillusionment. 
deep trouble. So when Asaph got his eyes off of God and his calling, and he, and he scheduled off days on PC and said, I don't want to lead worship those four weekends, that eight weekends, those 12 weekends, he was distracted by the lifestyles of the wicked. He starts going on Facebook, and he follows wicked people's feeds. He gets his eyes on their feeds every day. It led to disillusionment. And next slide here, I'm going to show you the slide. Thank you, Tony Parsons, for creating this for me. It led to ultimately disillusionment. So you have distraction, which leads to distortion. I don't see correctly, which leads to discouragement in my soul, which leads to the great temptation of disobedience, which leads to disillusionment. And the only way to get out of the cycle again is to be distracted by another worldly thing. So then the cycle starts back over again. So I make it through the cycle. I get disillusioned. So I need a new distraction from the things of the world to get back into the cycle again. Now look at me. I am not here to beat people up today. I want to see you walk in freedom and joy. But I have come to understand if I don't diagnose what's going on in my heart, I can't give the proper medication. And I, I don't know, am I the only one that's been in a cycle of disillusionment? I didn't think I was. Okay, Distraction leads to disillusionment. And I want to tell you, God has something better for you than this. Some of you right now was praying this this week, and I had this strong impression, and I want you to hear me. Some of you, out of discouragement from distraction, you right now are in a state of disobedience. And I want to tell you, today is an invitation from the God of the universe out of your disobedience into joy. And I felt when I was praying, there was an impression the Lord was saying, God is saying, you can leave that cycle of disillusionment, and you can find joy today. You can find joy today. Your heart can come alive today. And I figured at this point in the message, it's probably best to use a quote from one of my favorite authors. He's becoming my, quickly my favorite author, Ronald Ronhauser, because he just writes about anything and everything, and it's so beautiful. This is what he said. Narcissism accounts for our heartaches, pragmatism for our headaches, restlessness for our insomnia. And constancy of all th three together account for the fact that we are so habitually self-absorbed by heartaches, narcissism, headaches, pragmatism, and greed, insomnia, restlessness, for experience that we rarely find the time and space to be in touch with the deeper movements inside of and around us. And then he goes on to quote a couple authors that say the same thing. He said, what each of these authors and countless others are saying is that we, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It's not that we have anything against God, death, and spirit. We would really like these. It's just that we're habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We're more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, the World Cup, the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in the church. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. We must at least address this. I want today's message to be life-giving. So you can grow in intimacy with God and grow in your understanding with God. Maybe you feel today disconnected from reality. Here's the key. You have to become aware of your distractions. That's where everything starts. You have to get a, a filter up of all distractions, okay? And you have to be aware. When, when, when I realized about a year and a half ago this was happening to me, one of the things I did... Now, I don't know if, if Tony, my assistant, likes it so much. One of the things I did, it happened yesterday at my house with Andy Calvert. He said, I sent you something. And I said, well, I can't get it right now. Why? Because I took the email off my phone. So now I have no access to email on my phone. You cannot send me a church address email to my phone and me check it. Can't do it. And you say, Craig, why? Because there comes a point in our life where we've got to get our phones out and we've got to look app by app, go to the app. 
And notification by notification, you got to ask yourself, by what do I want to be interrupted? Or what do I want to be reminded of? And you have to ask, because that's a, that's a spiritual question in the 21st century. Where do I want my attention drawn to? How can I audit my notifications? I've turned them all off. Push notifications. Anytime you put a new app on, it says, can I send it to you? I say, no, you cannot send me a notification, right? Do I need to know about this or do I not need to know about this? Which means I'm doing a bad job sometimes by sending you all meme after meme on Instagram. And some of you leaders, I send a video that I really like. I shouldn't do that. By what do I want to be distracted? Or else, here's what happens. You will miss the miracle around you. Here's, here's what the Jewish tradition says. You, you, you ready? You might have to pick your feet up. I did when I was reading this, okay? Jewish tradition says that the splitting of the Red Sea was the greatest miracle ever performed. And yet we have one Midrash that mentions two Israelites, Reuben and Shimon, who had a different experience. A- apparently, that's not Simone and, and Pumbaa. That's Shimon, okay? <laughs> apparently, the bottom of the sea, though safe to walk on, was not completely dry but a little muddy like a beach at low tide. So Reuben stepped into it and curled his lip. What's this muck? Shimon scowled. There's mud all over the place. It's just like the slime pits of Egypt, replied Reuben. What's the difference, complained Shimon? Mud here, mud in Israel, mud in Egypt. What's the same? And so it went for the two of them, grumbling all the way across the bottom of the sea. And because they never once looked up, they never understood while on the distant shore, everyone else was singing songs of praise. For Reuben and Shimon, the miracle never happened because they were so focused on the minor distractions of the moment, they miss the drama of God's deliverance. Holy moly, what a quote. What a quote. They miss the drama of God's great deliverance in the Red Sea. Hebrews 2 and 1 says this, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard so that we do not drift away. That drift word is a fascinating word, isn't it? You ever been at the beach and splashing around, you're like, all right, I'm getting out there to body surf on these low Gulf of Mexico waves. This is nothing like California, but I'm going to get out of here and body surf. And all of a sudden, you look up 20 minutes later, and you're like, where am I? You're like in North Carolina, you know? It's like, like, like what happened? All you were doing was enjoying yourself. It happens because you don't realize when you're in the water and you're just enjoying yourself in the water, the tide causes you to drift. You don't consciously set out into the water to say, hey, I'm going to consciously end up in North Carolina in an hour from now. No. In fact, what do all parents say on the beach? They might as well just put it in the sky. What do all parents say to their kids on the beach? You keep your eye on where we are. You know where we are at all times. Why? You can end up a mile down the beach by doing nothing other than enjoying yourself in the water. The current will take you away. The same is true of your devotion. It's the single distraction which will lead you to what? It will lead you to distortion, which will lead you to discouragement, which will lead you to disobedience, which will lead you to disillusionment. And the only way to get out of the cycle is to get another distraction. And before long, you've drifted away. Why? Because distraction leads to disillusionment. But here's the good news. Attention leads to adoration. So in this psalm, Asaph gets a revelation and it changes his life, right? This is the worship leader who's seeing things so unclearly. And it shifts his attention into a whole new reality and a whole new cycle. And I want to give you a different cycle. Attention leads to adoration. This is how Mary Oliver puts it. She said, attention is the beginning of devotion. Attention. Matt Woodley comments on how Jesus paid attention. <laughs> Matt Woodley said this. He said, 
By the way, I've got lots of authors. I told them in the media team, there's no sense in me preaching the message. I'll just let my favorite authors preach. He said throughout his life, Jesus kept saying things like, stay alert, keep watch, don't fall asleep. As he approached his death, these reminders grew in frequency and intensity. At one point, Jesus compared the time of his coming to the days of Noah when people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Obviously, Jesus wasn't anti-eating. He wasn't anti-marriage. The problem was so much deeper. When the flood finally came, no one saw it coming because they forgot to focus. So Jesus drove the point home by saying, therefore, be alert. Pay attention. So we have to get our attention focused on the right things. Look at what happens. We get a shift in Asaph's life. Verse 15. Watch how it shifts. Horrible language to good language. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end goal. What's he saying? He gets distracted. Maybe he wasn't on the worship team for a few weeks. He, 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 again, maybe, maybe planning center didn't have him scheduled. What happens? He signs up, follows wrong people online, follows them on Instagram. He follows their feeds. He gets disillusionment. He gets envy in his heart towards other people. He's filled with bitterness. He's now going by raw emotion. He's like a brute beast. He gets back on shift. The, you know, somebody sends him back a, a notification on planning center. He comes back into the house of God. He gets into the house of God, the first song, and he starts rubbing his eyes like, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? Why did I say that? And it all became clear to him again. Now, this is why pastors, by the way, in many ways are always staying, staying, stay connected to a local church. You cannot have what's happening right now on the, the, the Lake Alatoona today. You cannot have it even in, a, in front of a computer screen, honestly. You can try to. You can try to get a little bit of it, but this is why it is so important. Why? It's not that we need your attendance numbers. It's because you need your attention fixed on the right things. And I have found there are no people disciplined enough to have my attention on the right things if I can't weekly get together with other believers to focus my attention. I have to, I can't afford to have my attention focused on every sports of every one of my kids week after week after week and then I'm surprised when my kids are disillusioned. I want to take parents and say I love you to death but let me shake you for Jesus. Your life is what you pay attention to. At the end of your life, your life theme will be what did you look at? What did you weekly, daily, hourly, minute by minute pay attention to? Because it's amazing how people in Atlanta who believe so many different things, you can gather with guns people on Sunday and say, wait, I'm not insane after all. This, this feels right. This feels right. There's something powerful about stepping into the house of God. And when you do, your attention begins to shift. I entered the sanctuary of the Lord. Then I understood how this worked out, he said. Look at William James. William James said this. He said, we must reflect that when we reach our deathbed, our life experience will simply equal what we've paid attention to, whether by our own choice or by the default of the things around us. That's what your life is. Look at me, church. Your life consists of what you pay attention to. So this begs the question, how might God get your attention when you feel stuck? What I want to do for the next few moments is give you some indicators that God is getting you out of the cycle of disillusionment. Now, it might not feel good, but it is grace. Okay, Here's how he gets you out of the cycle of disillusionment to get you into the cycle of adoration. Are you ready? The first one we don't like to talk about, but it is remarkably effective. I'd say it's the most effective. It's called pain. It's called pain. C.S. Lewis, in his great quote, most popular quote he probably had, right? He said, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. 
He said, God speaks to us in our pleasures, but he yells at us in our pains. It gets used a lot, right, that quote, but it's true, folks. Something steps into your life, and you're like, what have I been doing? I don't know if it's a relationship. I don't know if a person dumps you. I don't know if it's a breach. Something will happen. Pain will happen. And let me tell you, that can be one of God's greatest gifts to get your attention. Y'all know I've been using Richard Rohr lately more. He's a Catholic theologian. Somebody came up to me who's an ex-Catholic in our church, and he said, did you say Richard Rohr today? And I said, yeah, I can learn from Richard Rohr. I love some Richard Rohr. But this is what he said. So powerful. He said, once we reach the age of 30, success has nothing to teach us. Success is fun. It's rewarding. But we don't learn anything new from it by 30. It's not a bad friend. It's just a lousy teacher. The only thing that can teach us, that can get through us and profoundly change us by 30 plus is suffering, failure, loss, and wounds. That's so encouraging. <laughs> that is so encouraging. What a great text. Here's the second thing he'll do. Sometimes he'll use beauty. Everybody say beauty. You will discover something in your life or it will step into your life and it will take your breath away. And you'll say, oh, what is that? I'm not talking about a person. Okay, Some of you single folks are like, I, I receive it now in Jesus' name. <laughs> what is that? That's a human being. That's a human being made in God's image, okay? And God will use beauty because, listen, look at me. It has a transcendent power to break you out of normalcy and draw you into something deeper. This is the role of artists in our community. We have artists. Have you noticed how God's sending artists to our community? I preached a message a couple of marches ago, three marches ago, about using. I, I pray that dwelling place in our own city able, able to be the, the cultural center of art even in our own city. That's a prayer of mine. It's, that's something I've been praying. Art is designed to, to be a confrontation. Art is designed to say, stop, 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 look. And the better edit, the more you look. The better frame, picture frame, you look. Art is designed to confront you, to stop you. And sometimes God is kind and he uses beauty. And something transcendent breaks in. But the third way God shows an indicator, I think it's the one that God uses the most, is just the ordinary stuff of our lives. When this happens, it's one of the greatest gifts of life. You ever had, have you ever had one of these moments? Yo, I had this last night. I got to confess to you, I, as your pastor, we've been moving, so we sold our house, we're building a new house, we had to secure an apartment, the lot's going on in the Moss Grove house, I'm teaching, I started two of my jobs in the last few weeks, and so it's not a matter of me hating God, it's a matter of my focus. So last night, I was trying to write, I was at my table in my apartment, I was, I mean, I was toast, body was beyond exhausted, and it's like 10 to 30 at night, and I'm, I go to my wife and I say, babe, I got to go walk. Now, we have in a new apartment complex up in Canton. And you ever have those moments you just get out and the light hits perfectly on the street? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, the stars are perfect. And this overwhelming transcendence, just when you give your attention to it, hit me. And I walked across. I walked across. I walked across the street to Teasley Middle School. God just began to stir my heart because I saw a street sign. We live in Reservoir Drive. And the Lord spoke to me. He said, the reservoir of vision prophetically that has been placed in your life, you're about to enter a new season. And something transcendent 
and cars were flying by, and I found like a concrete pad. It's like the size of this rug, and I just lay back on like the concrete. It's like ants crawling around me. And I look up at the stars, and I turn on my worship music. And I know I explain it other than I felt like this. I don't know. I don't know if it's because I'm so tired (laughs) from moving, but this concrete felt like God's plush arms. I don't know how to explain it other than I was leaning back and and I was caught in this transcendent moment again to say, Craig, you're not my pastor. You're just my son. Are you going to pay attention to me? Oh, that's how God does it, doesn't he? Those ordinary moments that our attention is captured, what happens? Now no longer am I distorted. No longer am I discouraged, disobeying, or disillusioned. What happens? The attention. You ever had those moments? I mean, it's just all you can say is thank you. Thank you, thank you. Moments of transcendence. Maybe it's for you when you drive on 75 South to Atlanta and no one is in your lane. You're like, oh, dear God, what just happened? Did the rapture happen? No, I'm, I'm still here. I'm still here. Paying attention to our everyday life, it's the greatest gift God gives us. One author puts it this way. I think this is very interesting for the kind of church we want to be. This is what he said, Greg Boyd. Greg Boyd said, the fact is, if we can't discern God's presence in our day-to-day lives, it's unlikely we're going to find Him at a revival. We can find a lot of excitement and really good speakers and superb music and even some signs and wonders. I love the irony. But unless a person learns to find God as much in the ordinary as in the exciting, the exciting is going to do nothing more than just serve as a momentary distraction to get your focus back off of God. You're not going to find him there. It's often the people. Isn't it true that times of deep disillusionment follow revivals? Isn't it amazing how when you get in high spiritual activity moments, the temptation is to really be disillusioned? This is what Greg's hinting at. So when God breaks into our lives like this, what do we do? We have to turn aside. Everybody say turn aside. And we have to behold the glory. We have to respond to the invitation that God wants my attention. Now, Lawrence Kushner, I'm almost finished, is commenting on Moses. For those of you who may not know Moses' life, fascinating life, grew up uh, nursed by his mother, who they did not know in Pharaoh's court it was his mother, but found out he was a Jew living in Egyptian Pharaoh court and gets mad one day at the vindiction he needed for his fellow Jewish brother, kills a man, and then runs into the desert and stays there for 40 years. We don't know why. But he's a vagabond, frayed on the backside of the desert for 40 years. Let me just go ahead and say something to you. 40 years is 4,600 days since he had felt God's calling. 40 years. That's like leaving Wall Street in New York City and going to work at a Goodwill in Podunk, Kentucky. Okay? You would think, I think the calling might be gone. I might be missing something. Now, one day, as he's keeping the flock, chemicals often in the ancient Near Eastern, um, the chemicals of the dry bush will, will combust and they will light up. So it's not uncommon for bushes to light up. Most shepherds will tell you today that bushes light up all the time. So it's not uncommon for him to see a burning bush, but how long did it take for him to look at it to realize this thing ain't burning up? Look at what Kushner says. The burning bush was not a miracle. It was a test. God wanted to find out whether or not Moses could pay attention to something for more than a few minutes. When Moses did, God spoke. The trick is to pay attention to what is going on around you long enough to behold the miracle without falling asleep. Disciples, Garden of Gethsemane, there is another world. It's right here within this one. Whenever we pay attention.
Now it's Lawrence Kushner commenting on the Torah. Now let me read John Ortberg commenting on Lawrence Kushner who's commenting on the Torah. You ready? John Ortberg. Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. Everything turned on Moses' being willed to turn aside, to interrupt his daily routine, to pay attention to the presence of God. He didn't have to. He could have looked the other way, as many of us would. What would he have missed? Ah, just the exodus, the people of Israel, his own calling for life, the reason for his existence. He would have missed knowing God. Moses had seen the shrub before perhaps a hundred times, only this time it was different. But he didn't miss it. He stopped. He turned aside. Moses was willing to stop and see the place where God was at work and he marked it as holy by taking off his shoes. I want you to see this church. Our churches in America, we like to we like to note things theologically and then we move on to the next thing and we don't see that that moment of enlightenment is actually God getting our attention to invite us to encounter. It's not for us to get more good sermons so we can hear a good sermon and then be enlightened this week. It's the enlightenment when God, boom, lights the light in you. That's an invitation to get your attention on Him because He wants you to come close to encounter Him. It's an invitation from God into something new in your life, into something different in your life. So back to the cycle. When we give God our attention, it leads to an awareness. Awareness. Psalm 73, notice what he says. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to run. How suddenly they're destroyed. Wait a minute, Asaph. You just said the wealthy and the wicked don't have human problems. Now he says, I'm totally aware of the reality of life. I'm totally aware that they are going to die as well. Good, evil, sowing, reaping, sorrow, joy. It all comes into awareness as he has attention, which ultimately leads to the third part of the attention cycle, which is acknowledgement of God. Acknowledgement of God. Craig, you're just making up these A words. No, go to the next verse. Psalm 73, verse 23. Yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. Wait a minute. You said, where's God? Does he know anything? You just said seven verses ago. He don't know anything. He don't know where I'm at. I've kept my life pure for no reason. What do you mean, Asaph? You walked into the house of God and your attention shifted. It went away from distraction to the things of God. And afterward, you will take me into glory. What a beautiful passage. God, you're with me. When I pay attention to you, I realize you're with me. You're going to lead me by your wonderful counsel and one day you will take me into your own glory. Yet when he gets that acknowledgement of the reality of God, what does he say? You will, you will, you will, you will. What did he say before? Where is, why? Now it's you will God, you will God. Instead of it's not fair. Listen, if you'll listen to people at church, their, their language will betray them. I don't get to, it's not fair. Look at them. They've gotten distracted. Because when you get attention, it's you have led me by my right hand. Your counsel's with me. You will lead me into glory. Not they did, I didn't, he did, she did, they did. They, their language will betray their focus. This is C.S. Lewis tracking the beams of light back to the sun. This is Romans 1 acknowledging him as God. And when we do that, it ultimately leads to, guess what, appreciation. Look at verse 25, Psalm 73, whom I in heaven but you and earth has nothing I desire besides you. Wait, bro, you just said you wanted everything that the wicked people have. Now he says, I don't have anything but you. What a shift in perspective. He gets total clarity. He sees God. It makes him acknowledge. He appreciates this and it leads him to what? Worship or adoration. Adoration. Psalm 73, verse 28, what does he say? 28. Do we have 28? 
We don't have 28. He goes on in verse 28, and he says, ultimately, my attention, okay, my adoration, my long, my longing, my heart is filled, for I will say the Lord is my refuge. See, ultimately, there's not just a disillusionment cycle. There is a attention cycle. You ready? Next slide. Thank you, Tony, for doing this. Attention leads to awareness. Awareness leads to acknowledgement of who God is. Acknowledgement leads to an appreciation for what He's done. Appreciation leads to adoration for who He is, which then starts me back in the attention. So the key seems to be, leave it right there, if you don't want to be in disillusionment, you need to circle that top word, and you need to pay attention to what you pay attention to. Let me say it this way. Pay attention to your attention. Pay attention to your attention. Because... Your attention is the doorway to encounter. Let me say it again. Pay attention to your attention because your attention is the doorway to encounter. So let's make this practical. You ready? You want to make it practical? Then we'll close it down. Real, real practical. Let me show you. Buchner says this. How in the world do I get my focus on God? How do I learn to pay attention to my attention? What is the art of transitioning from attention to adoration. Buechner said, it seems to me, almost before the Bible says anything, it's saying how important it is to be alive and to pay attention to being alive. Pay attention to be other. Pay attention to God as He moves and speaks. Pay attention to where life or God has tried to take you. So you have to learn to pay attention. So let's get back to the book Captivology. Captivology, I told you, this is what he does. He gives us three ways that we capture our attention. Are you ready? This is it. He says there's three stages to your attention. It's called ignition... Kindling, bonfire. Come on, Jesse. Ignition, kindling, bonfire. He talks about ignition, kindling, bonfire. These are the three steps to get you to pay attention to God and then lead to adoration, leading to the fire of God in your life. By the way, this is my interpretation of, of him, okay, of his principles in captivology. But ignition, you ready, is about our immediate attention. Kindling is about, watch this, our short-term attention the bonfire is about our long-term attention and our values. So when I was younger, I still hunt on the same hunting lease. It's 4,000 plus acres, and there's an old abandoned cabin that has a wood stove in it. Now, I had initiation into manhood. You know what I'm talking about? I got this initiation to manhood where I have to learn to build a fire myself. And we would go out there some nights. I mean, I'm probably 10, 11 years old, and it would be like single digits. Now, I don't know if you know, but growing up in a house, modern house, um, I don't know if you know this, a wood-burning fire stove requires wood. <laughs> An electric heater requires a button. Propane requires a truck. So I thought, okay, i got to prove to all the other men it's time for me to carry my load. So we had this cabin. I mean, this wooden stove, when it's right, could heat up 2,000 square feet. I mean, it is, it is amazing. But I never forget as a young boy thinking, okay, I got to get this fire started. That's, that's, I mean, that's what primal man instinct, right? And I, I, I've got these old, older men looking at me and over my shoulder, and I'm thinking, you know, like, the older men have been doing this for decades. And, and I learned you have to get the thing started. That's the first thing. Like, you have to light it a bit, right? So that's like the paper. We got, like, cheater starter logs now. But, like, you got to get the thing started, the ignition, Okay? And then once you get it ignited, you take the kindling, right? You don't take big stuff, you gotta take little stuff. You gotta take the little kindling and you gotta get the kindling on there just right. Give a level of oxygen to it. And then there's that moment of transcendence 
when you take that dried log, baby, that chopped up tree, and you put that dried log on it, and it catches, and I'm like, yeah, man, come on around. Get your warmth around me. You know, like, like I can do this. This is exactly what our relationship with God is. Craig, how do I get that first spark? Let me tell you how I do it. You ready? This is a practice I've done for years of my life. I didn't do it. Saints have done it for thousands of years. It's called the prayer of examine. Here's what you do. Almost everything great that has happened in my life, every spark, every miracle has started by this single exercise. At the end of every day, I started doing this in college, you sit down with Jesus. It might mean you lay down with Jesus if you can stay awake. And here's what you do. You ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you about your day. Just do that. Just say, Holy Spirit, speak to me about my day. It's called the prayer of examine. Now watch this. I just ask a couple of questions. You want me to get practical? Here's what you do. You say, where did I feel closest to God today? Why? Where did I feel distant from God today? Why? What, what brought me joy today? What brought me sadness today? What hurt me today? What does this reveal about who God is today? What does this reveal about my view of life today? What does this reveal about my view of others today? And who am I? Do you realize this entire sermon that I, I pray God blessed you with came from me sitting down and saying to God, God, I don't pay attention like I used to. Would you right now redeem my attention as a miracle? Where do sermons start? They don't start by anything other than these moments of examine. These moments to get before God and honest and say, God, what's going on? And that's the spark. That's the ignition. That's the match. Now, if you come aware of this, this is, my, this is my favorite part because most people, they understand this. This is key. Most people's lives are just general Christian lives. Okay? Now, I love a good general Christian Christianity. Like, I love truth and worship and liturgy and sacraments. But you're not called to a general faith. You're called to a personal faith. A personal faith. So a lot of people, watch this, they try to build a bonfire on general revelation and they end up being Pharisees doing it. Why? Because the greatest fuel of God for the rest of your life will be you sitting with God and taking the fuel of questioning and saying, what are you speaking to me today? You will be amazed when you get God speak to you personally, it will light any and everything up in your life. And if I try to make a bonfire without the fuel of God speaking to me, I'm a Pharisee. If I want to try to warm up people in ministry around me and their cold hearts with the bonfire I'm building without first hearing God, what am I? I'm a Pharisee. I'm a Pharisee. So what do I do? I get along before God, the prayer of examine, and say, God, what are you doing? And then as you get that Holy Spirit spark, you say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? And you begin to put these little pieces of kindling. <laughs> Memo, it's not two-hour prayer meeting. It's like five verses a day on one topic. And here's what you do. You study it. Maybe you have a conversation with another believer about what you've learned. And listen, if you'll pay attention to that kindling over the few months, you will see very quickly a theme emerging from your life. And that theme will be the aspect of Christ in your life. And when that theme happens, you stick logs of focus around it. And you stick logs of right Twitter followers. And you stick the people that have been talking about this for 30 years. And you stick the focus on that side. And, and because why? You're building the bonfire of your life so that other people can come and get their cold hearts alive. So what happens? happens is the grace of God as you say, God, what are you speaking to me? You start putting the logs. What has God called me to do? Well, you got to get alone before God and ask him. And then you got to put kindling. You got to study some verses. Not many, not two. Look, you can't go to all night prayer. If you go to all night prayer before the kindling, you will literally destroy the fire. And what are you doing? Dang it. I got to get a match again. And this is what happens. People try to throw 
right now, I should be able to come to you and you should be able to come to me and you should be able to say, what is God speaking to you right now? I know right now two themes keep showing up in my life over and over, but I'm not ready for the log yet. If I was ready for the log yet, the log would be here. God don't want the log on me. It'll suffocate everything good and godly God's trying to do. It's not time for the log. It's time for me to get a kindling. It's time for me to get a little book. It's time for me to get a little engagement. It's time for me to follow certain people. Why? Because that kindling will burn. And then ultimately, what happens? Ooh, you get a hearth in your soul. You ever been around a hearth person, a burning believer? And cold people will come out of the cold and be drawn to you, and they'll say, Woo, can I warm my cold heart at the fire of your devotion? But it starts small. Holy Spirit, here was my Tuesday. When did I feel you were close? When did I feel you were far? What brought me joy today? So you have a choice. You can get distracted, which leads to distortion, which leads to discouragement, which leads to disobedience, which leads to disillusionment, or you can give your attention to God. And when you give that attention to God, what's going to happen? It's going to lead to adoration. Distraction leads to disillusionment, but attention leads to adoration. So here's my practice for the week. I gave you homework last week, didn't I? Here's your homework this week. End every day over the next seven days by reviewing your day with God. Start and say, Holy Spirit, talk to me about today. Noam Chomsky, not a believer, he says this, the vision of modern man is an individual in a dark room looking at a screen glowing on their face. I'm like, no, that was Holy Spirit inspired and you're not even a believer. He said the vision of modern man is a dark room with a person lying in their sheets with a screen in front of their face. How do you end your day? Laying in sheets? with blue light on your face? Do you end it in another room looking at pornography? Or do you end it by sitting before God and saying, God, talk to me about my day? Are you slapping your face to try to make it one more episode (laughs) on Netflix? Oh, it's worth it. It's worth it. Just think, years and years of going to bed and doing The right thing will lead to a right life, but years and years of going to bed and doing the wrong thing will lead to the wrong thing. Five minutes, 10 minutes. I promise you, y'all say this is too simple. I promise you things will begin to emerge in your life in the next month if you pay attention. Isn't this what happened with the prodigal son? Come on, team. What did he do? What did he do? He got distracted by faraway land. What did he do? He then got discouraged and took his money off. What happened? He got a distorted view of the father's house. What happened then? What happened to the prodigal? Just track it through scripture. He gets to a place of disobedience, turns his back on his dad. Then what happens? Disillusionment. He says, my dad won't even accept me anymore. I'm worse than a hired hand. But what happens? He starts making his way home. And what's the father doing? Father's waiting on him. What happens? He adores. And when he gets his eyes on what? The attention of the Father, what happens? He gets an acknowledgement, an understanding, an appreciation of who God is, which leads for an adoration in his heart of his heavenly Father. And I want to tell you today, that's what the Father is saying to you. He's paying attention to you today. He's paying attention to you. He's paying attention to you. And he wants to break the cycle. Who, know, who knew Asaph could tell us so much? Would you bow your heads with me across this room? Father, thank you. Thank you for your love and your mercy and your goodness and grace. Lord, as we conclude today, we just in response 
ask for the fire of your spirit to burn in our hearts. Let devotion be ignited. Just a small spark, just a match, just a lighter, just a piece of paper. By taking the moments of our day and saying, God, what did you do today? What are you doing today? And then, Lord, may we find the kindling. The five verses, the two books, the conversation with friend at Starbucks, the kindling to put on our spark. And then the day will come when every person in this room, the theme of their life will emerge. And then they can throw on the logs. The logs of focus, the logs of devotion, the logs of whatever you've called them to, to build within them a burning soul, a hearth that would draw the cold hearts around them to say that your kingdom is here now. Your love is here now. In Jesus' name. Church, would you stand with me right now and in response to the Lord, would you ask him to ignite? Some of you, you need the ignition. Some of you need to come out of the cycle of disillusionment. Some of you need to, you're already in the attention cycle. Awesome. Proceed to the next step. <laughs> Some of you are in distortion and just ask God to renew your your, your mind. Get away from the distractions and put your attention on what my Don't get distracted by a American election in November, people of God. An election has never, ever crushed Christianity. Why? Because Jesus isn't on the ballot. You can't vote for him or you can't vote against him. He's here. He's Lord. His church shall pursue. His church shall take ground. His church shall endure. Don't get distracted. Oh, can you pray about it? Yeah, but don't get distracted. Get your attention on the things of God. What does he have you to do? Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.